This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Going to be a huge year for the housing file. I mean, it was the biggest file of the year in 2023 in many respects. This year in British Columbia, in Metro Vancouver especially, we'll be talking a lot about this file, especially with an election approaching in the fall. Now think about what the David Eby government has done on this file. They have introduced just a flurry of legislation here designed to get more housing built, more housing units for sale and available to people in B.C. with the housing shortage and the crunch that we've got right now. The multiplex plan here. So this would effectively require force local governments to update their zoning laws and allow multi-unit buildings to be built on residential side streets. So we're talking single-family zone neighborhoods typically, right? The old-fashioned single-family detached house, which still dominates so many city landscapes. The province wants to replace those, tear those down, Okay, so get rid of those single-family detached homes and build a multiplex instead. So a duplex, a fourplex, how about a sixplex or even an eightplex? These would be condo-style units, these stratified units on these lots. And we're already seeing some uptake on it. i got Dan Fomano standing by to discuss, columnist at the Vancouver Sun, and I encourage you to check out his recent column on this topic, VancouverSun.com. Have a listen to this here first. This is housing activist Ian Cromwell. Now, he was asked, well, wait a second here. What if I like my quiet, uh, leafy neighborhood, a uh, low-density side street that I live on? And now suddenly all these multiplexes are going to be built on my street. What if I don't like that? Here's what he had to say about it. Listen to this. I'm sure there are going to be some people who will who will only see the downsides to a, a denser and healthier city. But I think there are a lot of people who are going to welcome having more people when they walk down the street. Yeah, more people. And people will like that. They'll like to see more people in the neighborhood. Well, maybe some people will, and some people won't. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dan Fomano from the Vancouver Sun. Hey, Dan. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Great job on this story here. Let's talk about what's going on in Vancouver. Are we starting to see some results of this? Because Vancouver's got their own densification plan, right? Are we starting to see some of these single-family homes replaced by these multiplexes? Yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, the, the provincial government under uh, Premier David Eby is bringing forward their own changes that are going to sort of force municipalities of a certain size to start accepting um, denser sort of housing types, you know, three and four units per lot. But right. here in the city of Vancouver, um, the municipal government had already sort of been looking at this basically planning and discussing and debating moving in this direction for for several years now and 
just last year, you know, the current council uh, unanimously approved these some zoning changes to sort of uh, enable these kinds of what what city staff call multiplexes, um, which is up to six strata units per lot, depending on the lot size. Um, and so basically where we're at now is in no late November, City Hall started accepting applications for these. And city staff were quite pleased that they they got a flurry of early interest in the first month or so after accepting applications. They got 19 completed applications submitted for three, four, five, and six unit multiplexes in different neighborhoods around the city. So those are working their way through the process. Those applications are now working their way through the process. But realistically, it seems possible that some of those could start to break ground uh, this year in 2024. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. And I encourage people to check out your story on this online because it's got a really cool map that you guys have put together showing where yeah. some of these uh, multiplexes could be located. And they're in various neighborhoods of Vancouver. So 19 of these applications so far. And that would translate into how many new homes, Dan? Like how many units on those 19 lots are we talking about here? Uh, the city, I think they, I think the total was about 84 homes. Yeah. 84. Uh, so, 84. Yeah. So where there's currently, and I don't know the exact details of every current building, so some of them might be single houses, some of them might be a house with a basement suite, some of them might be duplexes, but so I'm not sure what the exact exact net gain in homes would be, but it would right. be presumably, you know, an increase of dozens of additional new homes. Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. I mean, if you've got 19 of these applications and it's going to generate 84 units of housing, I mean, you can see the the potential multiplier effect here if this really catches on in neighborhoods across the city. How is this? What is your sense, Dan, on how people are reacting to this, like the neighbors in these neighborhoods? Is yeah. anyone putting up a fuss about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is definitely <laughs> some opposition to this. Um, as you probably know, one thing that people, um, a lot of people focus on is parking. Parking yes. is always a concern for people, understandably. Um, you know, these are going to be coming in in parts of the city. These are typically like residential side streets. As you said, these are areas, it's... Um, if you look at a map of Vancouver, it is mo the vast majority of the residential land of Vancouver is these low density kind of side streets where it's houses and then more recently some duplexes. Um, but these would be built with no requirement for on-site parking. So yeah. developers can include parking. You know, they could build a garage, they could build a driveway or something if they if they want to include that in the plan. But there isn't a minimum number of parking spaces that are required on site the way you would have if you're building an apartment building or, or a condo building or something like that so that is a concern definitely that some people have um other people will say that that concern is overblown when you look at these neighborhoods there is a lot of space on the street a lot of people in these neighborhoods might have garages that they don't even bother to park their car in because there's so much space on the street um and then the idea too is that if we can do a better job of planning cities so that people's daily needs are walkable or, you know, a short walk or roll from where they live, that they don't need to get in a car every time they want to go get a quart of milk and they don't necessarily need to get in the car to take their kids to daycare. If they can walk to their daily needs, it can reduce the need for cars or at least as many private cars. Um, so 
it'll remain to be seen. Of course, it, it bears mentioning that these kinds of house, these kinds of projects aren't completely new in Vancouver. There are lots of examples of four and five and six unit buildings in certain neighborhoods around town. Um, a lot of them are older, big houses that have been kind of converted into multi-unit dwellings. But what's different now is that there's a clear kind of zoning that makes should make it, in theory, easier and more kind of reliable and predictable for builders to go through this process. Um, whereas previously, you know, that wasn't the case. And it was also limited largely to certain areas. Right, yeah, it does sound like they, they want to streamline the process and really get this rolling. Yes. And speaking to Vancouver's son, columnist Dan Famano, and, and Dan, in your article, you also talked to some local builders and developers. It would seem on the surface this would be like a developer's dream. Like, okay, now I've got a single-family lot. Maybe there's one home there, a single-family home there now. But, man, now I can put up six homes on this lot? Now I've got six homes to sell on one lot? You'd think if you're a builder or developer, you would love this. What what did some of these developers and builders tell you? Yeah, uh, so, so a lot of the developers and builders I've spoken with, um, they like this program. Hey, they might have some quibbles about it. They might, they might, there might be things you know that they don't like about it uh, that they would have changed here or there. But largely, they they seem to like it. I mean, there's one builder who I spoke with last week was saying, you know, he's building this five unit, or he's got an application in to build this five unit project in East Van. Before this multiplex zoning was passed, the only thing he could build there would be, you know, if he was going to redevelop this old house, knock down the old house and build something new. Previously, the only thing they could easily build would be a single house or a duplex. Um, and then, you know, each of those, uh, whether it's, you know, the two units in the duplex, they would go for millions of, you know, a couple million each, maybe. Um, yeah. Whereas with this fiveplex, the price point on each of the five units is lower. So he has a much bigger pool of buyers who they can market these units to. There are many more people in Vancouver who might be able to afford a $900,000 two bedroom unit who can't afford a $2 million half duplex. So there's a bigger group of people they can sell these homes to. Now, so the builders, what I've heard largely so far, and keep in mind, these are sort of, they tend to be smaller builders, you know, uh, smaller, medium-sized companies. The major developers of Vancouver, you know, the Onis, Bozas, Polygons, they're not, I don't think they're going to be building these, right? These are smaller builders. You may not have, you know, heard of some of these companies, but all, some of them may be established and they've been around for a long time, family-run building companies. But this is not where the major, you know, big developers are going to be flocking into this area, I don't think. But, right, and um, the, that's, yeah, a real, no, that's a really... Really interesting breakdown you just did there on the potential cost of these units, because one complaint that I've heard about is, well, okay, the government's trying to densify, they're trying to build more housing, and we all know we need more housing, but it, will it be affordable housing? Now, in that example that you just cited, let's say a developer builds a fiveplex on that lot, is that what the developer told you, that they might go for 900000 bucks a piece? Yeah, so there's a yeah. sort of back in the napkin math, and, you know, we can't, completely holding to this but he was saying you know just as a rough ballpark thinking you know a thousand bucks a square foot uh in east van he said he figures the three bedroom plus den units so you know that could be quite you know co quite comfortable potentially for a family sure. uh, three bedroom plus den units uh could sell for about 1.65 million each <clears throat> that was his ballpark yeah. um so that's not cheap 
but it is a no. newly built home in a desirable neighborhood, a short walk from schools, shops, amenities, transit. Uh, and there's just no way around the fact that it is cheaper than a new single house or even a new half duplex. Now, yeah. there's also going to be two ground level two bedroom units, which he figured could sell for around $900,000 each. He figures those could be good for downsizing seniors, you know, um, yeah. and it just provides different options that are have not previously been widely available. So again, you know, the price of the units will differ, but it will be less than a single house, which right. a lot of Vancouver's building, a lot of the construction that happens in Vancouver for the last several decades has been an old single house getting demolished and a new, bigger, more expensive single house in its place. Now, sometimes yeah. the new single house will have a basement suite. So that's a net gain of one new housing unit, right? Sometimes yeah. it'll have a basement suite and a laneway house. So you could be going from one home to three homes. But here, you know, you can be going from one to five or one to six, potentially. Dan, great job on this. I encourage people to check out your article on this. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about cybercrime on the rise. Scams and ripoffs, identity theft, hacking into your credit card, your bank account. This is on the rise in Canada, has it ever happened to you? It's happened to me. I've had my credit card hacked. It's happened to other members of my family, too, including my son, who was just 18 at the time, had his bank account hacked and thousands of dollars taken out of his bank account. And someone was able to steal his identity and take some money out of his bank account. This is happening more often. It happens to younger people a lot, too, or a lot more wired up and living online got jane arnett standing by to discuss we've talked about this on the show first have a listen to this sam Corey, he is the head of the canadian center for cyber security have a listen for the next two years we suspect that cyber crime will continue to go up it's a it's a profitable uh enterprise so uh, for as long as those cyber criminals continue to make money we suspect that uh that will be an active uh, sort of an active targeting of Canadian and Canadian business. It impacts hospital, it impacts uh, critical infrastructure that can in turn uh, have devastating impact on citizens. This is happening to a lot of people. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Jane Arnett. Jane is a cybersecurity expert at Checkpoint, which is a leading provider of cybersecurity solutions for business and governments around the world. Jane, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for, so much for taking the time, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for doing it. When you take a look at the landscape of this on cybersecurity, I mean, these threats are going up, right? This is becoming more and more common. This happens to a lot of people. Absolutely. I mean, I was listening to you off the top and ouch, it's hit you, it's hit your family. Um, it's It's invasive. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this has happened to me. I've had credit card hack. My wife recently had her credit card somehow compromised. Uh, my son in his bank account. And my son, when that happened to him and he had a bunch of money drained out of his bank account, he was just 18 years old. And this is interesting, some of the research that you guys have done there at Checkpoint, because it, it, tell me a little bit about that, especially the, the younger generation, let's say Gen Z. A lot of these kids are online. Does that make them more vulnerable to cyber attacks? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, there's a few uh, uh, research studies done recently. Verizon did one. Deloitte did one that was really Canadian specific. EY, I think, has done one as well. And 
they kind of all found the same thing that that the younger you are, Gen Z, for example, are uh, like three times more likely to be susceptible to cybercrime than boomers, which kind of is counterintuitive because we're used to being like, okay, I have a problem with my device. Where's the youngest person in the room? Fix this for me, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but there's, you know, like you said, I think they're more connected. I think that's a big part of it. Um, a colleague of mine said, you know, my parents would get scammed more if they could figure out how, but they're not <laughs> using mobile banking, for example. So it, it's one less target area, I suppose. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because I think it is kind of counterintuitive because I think there's a perception that maybe that older people are maybe more vulnerable to some sort of sophisticated scam or a ripoff. And you hear a lot of heartbreaking stories about seniors who were taken in by online phishing scams and stuff like that. But boy, when you take a look at this sort of Gen Z generation, a lot of them are very uh, plugged in to living living their lives online. What kind of what kind of scams or frauds are they being targeted with? Oh uh, yeah, great question. I think they're specifically targeted with a lot more um, evolved phishing campaigns because there's so much information about them out on various social media apps. It's a lot easier to target them specifically using the information about them uniquely that's out there. Um, in addition, they were raised by parents who all were discovering Facebook by answering questions about, you know, what's, what's your kid's um, favorite color and, and all of the other password reset questions. So I think they're, for a lot of reasons, they're a lot more vulnerable than, you know, the baby boomer generation who, who just doesn't have that information out there as readily and uh, prolifically, if you will. Yeah, just taking a look at some of your research there at the Checkpoint website, and some of these scams are like fake job offers. A lot of young people, everyone's online looking for jobs these days if you're in the job market, but are, are young oh, yeah. people particularly susceptible to that, like a fake job offer? How does that scam work? Yeah, for sure. I think I think there's a lot of different ways to reach out, whether it's fake job offers or fake different fake ways to make income like crypto scams and, and things like that. Um, I was having a conversation earlier today where we were talking about the, um, the less to lose and more to gain, if you will. Um, you know, there's, there's less savings. You know, somebody goes bankrupt uh, when you're 25. There's still time in your life potentially to recover from that as opposed to going bankrupt when you're 65. Um, so the, the comfort with taking a risk that something potentially is real that's going to impact your life, especially, you know, I remember being a struggling student, like when you're 23 years old, like life, life is, is harder. You, you're hustling. And, and if there's a way that you can get a leg up or make your life easier um, or get a job in a, in a crazy job market, um, worth the risk, worth the reaction, I think, a lot of the time or it can feel that way. I remember talking to my son who was telling me a little while ago about some sort of uh, his, his, a few of his friends had gotten involved in a an online business. It sounded like kind of one of those multi-level marketing schemes. And as he was describing this to me, I was going, I was just thinking to myself, this is a scam. I mean, I could just tell right away it's, it's a ripoff. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, how do those schemes work? Oh, yeah, man, there, there's so many, I think, because there are so many um, 
ways that really do work on these platforms that people can make money. Look, marketing, uh, multi-level marketing, um, depending when you got in, back in the day when you knew all your neighbors and you would go through all their friends and eventually you'd reach the end really quickly of, of how big of a triangle you could make underneath you. Um, it's a lot different in today's day and age when you can reach the entire globe through the internet. Um, yeah. So it, it can seem a lot more appealing, I think, for a longer period of time. And, and potentially, it's, it's not entirely a scam. Potentially, you could make some money off of that. Maybe you're getting in on a, a higher up in the triangle, um, if you will, or thinking that you will. Um, yeah. But still, in those scams, they end up taking money from you in whatever way possible. Either you need a certification or you need a product or you need whatever you need to get the next level. They're making money off of you. Speaking of Jane Arnett from Checkpoint, talking about cybersecurity, especially for younger people, this affects everybody. Do you have any tips, Jane, on how people can protect themselves so this doesn't happen to them in, this, in the new year? Yeah, I can give you three like simple ones. Number one is keep your software up to date. I know sometimes it's annoying, but click that button, update the software. Those security updates that come with that are really important. Um, number two, um, you know, use a tool like, you know, Checkpoint has something called Zone Alarm that's for the home user that can take a lot of the work off of you and have AI and a technology doing of a lot of the keeping you safe. Um, so do that. And then watch the information that you're giving out, whether that is to someone online, someone in a phone call, in a text. Um, or generative AI, like just watch the information that you're giving and make sure you're not giving away anything that's personal. Um, oh, and up, update those passwords, please. Passwords, yeah. long, long passwords that are difficult yeah. to guess. Everybody, everybody, that's the old school one. Like, make sure you don't, <laughs> make sure you don't have an easy yeah. to guess password. I've been guilty of that. My kids tease me about that. What about the uh, the multi factor authentication? That that's been coming much more common too like sometimes you'll you'll type in your password but then you have to type in a number that they may send to you on your cell phone in a text message i always kind of like that because it's just an extra layer of security of just checking to make sure right yeah it is an extra layer and it's an important layer and that i think is where having that that security technology built into the device becomes important as well because if it's an sms message that's coming to you those messages can be intercepted unless you have a security tool there so if you want to take you know, we're talking about layering those steps of protection, right? Having a really strong password and then turning on your multi-factor authentication, whether it's SMS or otherwise. Um, and then, you know, also having another step of a, a security vendor technology there to help you with that extra layer. Yeah, what about social media accounts so popular with young people? I mean, every young person I know is on TikTok, Instagram, everywhere, right? Should, should people be careful about that? Yeah, that's a tricky one because it's it's really all it's a lifestyle as well, and I need to be mindful of that. For me, I I stay away from social media as much as possible myself, um, and more and more the older I get, the more I've kind of insulated myself from from what's on there. Listen, I think the um, the younger generations are now getting smarter about what they put online as well. Yeah. Um, I think the problems for them are that you know, things were already put out there or put out there by their parents or, you know, they're facing facing that reality. But there's 
there's ways to still keep a lot of your important information safe and, and use different sort of password reset questions and, you know, all of that. Jane, some great advice today. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for the time. I'll chat again. Have a good one. A lot of people right now struggling with their debt and their finances here. Brand new report out on this. This is taking a toll on people's mental health. A lot of British Columbians say their financial situation causes them anxiety. 59% of British Columbians report that. 58% of people in BC, they suffer from stress because of their anxiety. Isolation and embarrassment also reported as people struggle with their personal finances. I'm going to talk about that right now with Linda Paul. Have a listen to this here first. This report is from Christina Stevens, Global News reporter. 27-year-old Kate Flanders checks every price before buying after racking up $30,000 in debt. I literally used to peek inside my credit card statement just to see what the minimum was, but I wouldn't actually look at the full balance. Two years ago, she took control and started blogging about her drastic lifestyle changes. I completely stopped uh, going out for dinners and drinks with friends. I didn't shop at all. Turn around these financial problems. Let's discuss now with my guest, Linda Paul. Linda is a licensed insolvency trustee with MNP Limited. Linda, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, thank you, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks a lot. It's really interesting to look at some of the findings on this survey that find that a lot of British Columbians, I mean, a lot of people are in debt, right? But it takes a, a toll on their mental health, too. What did you find out in this survey? Yeah, I think that's the most striking thing that we found from the survey is just the, the toll that it's having on people's mental health uh, more so than ever. I think the most um, noticeable uh, point is that people are isolating. Um, we kind of coined the term inflation isolation. And what we're finding is 40%, as you mentioned, British Columbians are, are isolating. So that means they're not going out with friends and families and they're not... Um, sometimes because they don't have the disposable income to go and do social things and also because they don't feel like it anymore. So that's what we find is most concerning about this recent survey. Yeah, that, that is really troubling finding for sure. And also, this is interesting to me, embarrassment. Like if people have got, say, a maxed out credit card or they've got other type of debt, do some people, did you find that some people are actually kind of hiding this from their fr family and friends? It is. And uh, that story that you played before about that girl that just peeks at her, her minimum payment and doesn't look yeah. at the balance, that's not uncommon. People will come to me with their envelope sealed. They haven't even opened the mail. Um, and it's the legislation. So what I do is I help people get rid of their debt through a formal insolvency process, a bankruptcy or a proposal. But I'd right. say about 40% of the people that I see need to take that drastic action. So the other 60%, we can point them to resources in the community to get help. Um, and it might not mean a formal process. So that's, we'd like to break down that, those barriers for people so they are feeling better about themselves. There's so much negative stigma attached to asking for help when it comes to your debt. I mean, people don't think twice about seeing a doctor when they're not feeling well, but people really tie their feelings or their um, self-worth to how they're doing financially so then they're less likely to to reach out for help when they're struggling right and would you say that this time of year 
this becomes particularly acute? I mean, we just talked about Blue Monday, which is approaching this Monday. And when you think about this time of year, I mean, you've got all those Christmas shopping bills suddenly start showing up on your credit card. People's mortgage renewals come up. I mean, is this the type of year when people start feeling that kind of financial pinch? Yeah, this is the time of year exactly following the holiday season. So 44% of the people we talk to are regretting using credit um, mm. to get uh, to make ends meet or to enjoy the holidays more so than they do um, other years. So it is it is really a problem for people this time of year. And also, you know, if you talk to a family lawyer, I believe that this time of year is, is when families, you know, might... Uh, separate as well so people go th- mm. through one last Christmas as a family so there's also changes that that result of having two households now that you know are going to affect the finances as well so January yeah it doesn't seem to be the, the best month for people yeah yeah for sure speaking to Linda Paul Linda is a licensed insolvency trustee with MNP Limited their new findings and their new uh, financial survey here do you find that when people get into trouble financially, sometimes they end up going even deeper into debt if they need to borrow money or maybe dip into savings or their RSP. Exactly. Yeah. So we do see that. So those numbers are, are smaller. So about 18% of the people that we spoke to are using credit um, to, to make ends meet. Sorry, that's a national number. In BC, the number is 16%. Um, so people are borrowing at higher interest rates because they might not qualify for um, lower interest products. So they are getting kind of stuck in a cycle of debt and borrowing, knowing that they don't have a a quick solution or a a way to pay that back quickly. So, and yes, they're depleting home equity. They're taking money out of savings, collapsing RRSPs. So if you talk to a, um, a licensed insolvency trustee, then you can find out which assets are protected um, from your creditors. So you may not lose all of those things if you talk to a, a professional and get the tools to make a, an informed decision on how to, to deal with your debt. Mm. Yeah. And okay, that's really interesting. That's really important, I think, for people to know. And we mm-hmm. talked briefly about the, the credit card debt and that minimum payment on your credit card. And we were talking about this yesterday on the show. You can rack up a, a big balance on your credit card and then you could look at that minimum payment line on your bill and it'll be really, it'll be really low. Like sometimes they say, Oh, you know, you owe us thousands, but you only have to pay us 10 bucks this month. They don't want you to pay it off, right? They want to continue to soak you with that big exorbitant interest rate. Yeah, I think typically the minimum payment is 2%. So yeah, they're not really, if you make minimum payments, that's not really designed for you to pay that off in your lifetime. It's 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 designed to, you know, you're going to make a payment every month and, and that's it. You won't see an end to that debt. No. So with, yeah, so with a bankruptcy or proposal, whereas is it's not a bankruptcy, but you're offering a new arrangement with your creditors. You're essentially saying, hey guys, I can't pay you everything, but I can give you a percentage of what's owed. And then they get to decide on whether or not they accept that. So that's a consumer proposal. So then you have a five-year time frame to make payments. Um, you're not paying interest. You're just paying down you know, a portion of the principal. And the creditors agree to that. And then you have a fresh financial start when, when you can't get out of it by just making the minimum payments. And if that's all you can afford, then you won't be paying off that, that credit card in your lifetime, depending on the balance. Where can people uh, contact you if they want to get more information about some of the important options you're outlining there, Linda? 
Yeah, so at MNP, we offer a free consultation and there's no obligation to move forward. As I mentioned, I only probably help 40% of the people through a formal process, but we can be reached at 310-DEBT or 310-3328, or we're on the web at mnpdebt.ca. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.